0: Today's scripture comes from Revelation, chapter one, four through eight. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. And those who pierced him, and on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please bow and pray with me. Lord, open our hearts so that we may hear your words, so that we may listen with our hearts and be motivated to action. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many many of you aren't familiar with, I don't know, hip-hop? Anyone? All right, we got a few. Got a few hands? That's great. For the sermon title today... It's all eyes on Christ and it is scriptural, comes from the text when it says, all eyes shall see him. But it got me thinking, that verse got me thinking about, anybody know? Who had a song similar to All Eyes? Anyone? (laughs) All Eyes on Me, Do, do you remember that one? 1996, ooh yes, Tupac Shakur, ring a bell? Anybody remember Tupac? Well, he had this song called All Eyes On Me. And of course, this will be an edited version. Because I don't know if you're familiar with hip hop, but not all the words are for the sanctuary. So it it starts, y'all know how it is. Go, you know, all eyes on me, OG, roll up in the club and all eyes on me, all eyes on me. Hey, you know what? I bet you got it twisted. You don't know who to trust. So many playing, hating, trying to sound like us, so they ready for the funk, but I don't think they knowin'. straight up to the depths of hell is where they, these cowards be going. Well, are you still down? Holler when you see me and let these devils be sorry for the day they finally freed me. So much trouble in the world, can't nobody feel your pain. The world's changing every day, time's moving fast. My girl said I need a raise, how long will it last? I'm caught between my woman and my pistol and my chips. Triple beam, got some smokers on, whistle as I dip. I'm lost to the land with no plan, living, my, living life flawless. Crime boss, contraband, let me toss this. Mediocre's got a lot of nerve, let my bucket swerve. I'm taking off from the curb. All eyes on me. So I bet you're wondering, like, what? I don't, <laughs> Is that Christ the king? Well, it's not Christ the king, but what it does is it mimics some of the kingdom speak, right? So when we look at Revelation, we have this, number one, we have a letter to the churches, and we have, and I'll go, the, go into this more uh, in depth, but we have a letter to the churches, and we have a conflict there's an issue. I especially like the line, I bet you got it twisted. You don't know who to trust. Apparently, it doesn't matter if it's in the first century or it's in the 90s or it's in the 20s, people are still unsure of who to trust. But the difference is where in this song, it says, all eyes on me, where the rapper is the focus and whatever he's doing is the object of Attention, we're saying all eyes on Christ. That's where we should have our eyes when we go through uncertainty, when we don't know who to trust, when the world seems topsy-turvy, when everything is not as it used to be. All eyes on Christ. So for context, let's look at Revelation. I know Revelation can be a very daunting book. How many of you have read it and it not been part of a Bible study? You don't have to raise your hand. Oh. <laughs> now, was it for Halloween? Was it like nightmare stories? Like, Or are you just like really curious? Because a lot of people are timid about revelation. And I'm here to tell you that revelation isn't all bad. It's not bad at all if you follow Christ. Put that caveat in there. So who wrote it? We get in the first chapter, who wrote it, John. And we have a familiarity with John. John also writes the gospel of John. And you may not know this, but he also writes what other book? <laughs> so we know about John, right? John, John has a lot to say. In the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god you know so in revelation john is calling himself a prophet but not necessarily a priest however in the text we find that technically he is a priest and i know in some sermons earlier we talked about the distinction between a priest and a prophet one they're not nec- they're not necessarily the same you don't have to shout it out, but do you remember the dif- the difference between a, a priest and a prophet? Yes, I heard a yes. Was it from the peanut gallery or was it from? <laughs> <laughs> Although I do love peanuts. Uh, was it back here? Yeah, was. Any, but do you remember the distinction? Yes. Okay. So typically, your prophet doesn't have to be a priest. Like, they don't have to be the same person. We find that in the Old Testament, it is very common to have a prophet who is not a priest. What's the difference? Well, a prophet isn't necessarily linked to the temple. It's not the, it's not the person is not concerned with a ceremony, with being a necessary necessarily a mediator between God and the people, not cleansing anything, not doing any sacrifices, the role of a priest, right? The priest had to be in order whenever that person went into the sanctuary. They were going before God. So there's that other component that they the priest was in the presence of God. That's what the priest represented, right? Now, the prophet not necessarily so. The prophet doesn't necessarily Again, have to deal with any ceremony linked to a temple. But then a key distinction is that the prophet is a mouthpiece for God. God gave the word and the prophet is saying it. It's not necessarily an intermediary or an intercessor in any means. It's God has already warned you about what your actions, the, what the results of your actions would be. I'm here to tell you that it is going to come to pass. That's typically the message of the prophet. So John is aligning himself with the prophets, In particular, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah. What do we know about Daniel? Daniel and the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? What do we know about Ezekiel? The booms the booms. <laughs> we know about Zachariah. I know my redeemer. Know my redeemer. Thank you. <laughs> Trick questions. I know my redeemer limits. So you have th- those particular prophets are in a time of turmoil with Israel. Either they are in exile or They are being occupied by a foreign entity and the prophet is there to say, hey, this is what's going to be. But then there's this extra component as well to look toward the future because it won't always be this way. And that's a difficult message to bring. How do you offer a prophetic voice when there is despair, when there is hopelessness, when there is despondency when there's just seemingly no way out and God calls certain individuals to do just that to be the voice of hope all right so now what's the purpose of revelations revelations well first of all he's writing to churches do you remember how many churches seven excellent seven churches right into seven churches seven is a huge number in the bible i don't know if you uh realize that uh, god created the world in how many days seven days yes and here each church seven a uh, seven is the number of completion in a sense so when it says seven churches yes there were a literal seven churches but if we're looking at this in the totality of the book and how the message can carry forward beyond the first century, seven is the full-on church, all believers. So again, while this is to the seven churches in Asia Minor, we can read it and go, wait a minute, we are still facing some of that. There's a church in Laodicea where they're considered a rich church they have means and John tells them hey you got to watch that make sure that your heart doesn't turn because they're relying on their funds instead of the Lord all right the purpose so this is pastoral in nature it actually is meant to encourage we don't think about Revelations that way. We don't think of it as a really encouraging book, especially when we go deeper into it and we're seeing, we're reading all these images about double headed beasts or, you know, fire and Jezebels and just the whole lot. And it can be a very, very scary. But it's not meant to scare, in a sense, to scare away. It's meant to serve as a symbolism, right? Very symbolic. And what was going on then. So it's not completely literal, obviously, but again, it's, it's using the language in a way that grabs the reader's interest and then hopefully they one, either know the references that John is talking about or two, want to dig a little deeper. What is the genre of this book? So the genre, it hits a, a couple of things. It's an epistle, meaning that it's, it teaches It's pastoral, we already talked about that. It encourages, or the epistle, what to do, what not to do. Uh, Pastoral, encourages, and apocalyptic. And that's the word that really brings us down, right? Because when we think about apocalypse, we think, oh, the end. I don't really want to read about that right now. kind of enjoying my life here. But apocalyptic, and it comes from the Greek, meaning to reveal. Sure, the end times are being revealed, but... It's a revelation, nothing to be afraid of. So there are some things that are recurrent. Jesus as the word, Jesus is the lamb, Jesus is a shepherd, light and life. And where is it? Asia Minor, we talked about that. Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, primarily, but parts of Assyria, Georgia, Armenia, Lebanon, stop me if you heard any of these before, Iran, Iraq, Greece, Russia, Bulgaria. That would be Asia Minor. So now when you hear Asia Minor, you can kind of like visualize where in the world are we. But I told you that it's about encouraging. So what do they need encouraging for? Well, a lot of churches were experiencing persecution, refusing to participate in the emperor cult meaning they didn't want to worship the Caesar. So now we're going to go into the text. It's going to be a quick run through, quick-ish, Presbyterian quick. <laughs> so looking at verse number four, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. So we have a, an allusion to the I am, right? When Moses asked, who is sending me? I am. What is I am? I am. That just, it's a current state. But now we have this completeness, right? I am, I was, I will be, right? So God is saying, I am the beginning and the end and everything in between. There is nothing that exists without me. And then we have, it says, and from the seven spirits and who before his throne. So there's a bit of debate about who the seven spirits are. I know there was a period where it's very popular to say, you know, giving thanks and honor to God who's the head of my life. I don't know if you're from this tradition. If you're speaking as a guest, you have to say that speech and you also have to honor or give respect to whoever is the angel of the house. And sometimes the angel of the house meant the pastor, but no one really knew. It's just someone had read Revelation, and it just sounded kind of cool to say that. So with with this, we have the seven spirits. And some will say that it's the seven angels. And it's represent, remember, this is symbolic, that the angels representing the fullness. So you have a representation of all of the earthly realm in heaven, and they're going before the throne. That's one view, angels. The second view is seven represents, the seven spirits represents the Holy Spirit. Uh, There is a context for this in Isaiah with the seven lampstands representing the Holy Spirit. Some argue that that's that's not it. I will argue for it. It doesn't mean that I'm right, but I'm arguing for it, and here's why. Because we already established the fact that we believe John is the writer of this book. John is huge on the Holy Spirit. John is Trinitarian all the way. So since John is writing this, we already have the Father, we have the Son. I think John wants to throw in the Holy Spirit and say the seven spirits. Maybe you say no, I don't think so at all. Hey, that's cool, but this is my interpretation, so I'm going to go with it. (laughs) The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth the firstborn of the dead. So we have this dead speak. What it means is that Christ is has done a new thing, that anyone who believes and comes after Christ, we will live as Christ lived. We will be resurrected as Christ was resurrected. So that's what it means, the firstborn, because Christ inaugurates this way of being, this way of existing that hadn't before. so no that hadn't been before. So no it's not Christ is firstborn it's like well technically because you know he was there at the beginning so I guess he was the firstborn. no no, that's not what it means. Again, what it means is because Christ was raised from the dead, Christ is the first to blaze that trail. All right, to him who loves us and frees us from our sins by his blood, Christ's death and resurrection frees us from sin, the consequences of sin, the consequences ultimately being having eternal separation from God. We are forgiven. That's what that means. To free us, we have forgiveness. So glory, dominion forever. Amen. Let it be so. Here's my part. Seven, look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, all eyes on Christ. Does it mean that Christ will come from the heaven and like no matter where you are on the planet, that you will see the Lord? Kind of seems that way, right? But no. What we're saying is that all eyes will see him. All All people will acknowledge that Christ is king. Those who pierced him, those who did not believe before, will acknowledge that Christ is king. All the tribes of the earth. And then in 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. Again, the beginning and the end and everything in between. I am who is, who was, who is to come. Almighty. See, that's a scriptural breakdown, just like that. Not too bad. So, There's one um, aspect that I want to extract and it's what was the real deal going on? Like why, why the letters? Why the encouragement? And it boils down to this, compromise. The people were compromising their faith because they wanted to fit in. Into what? Into the culture, making certain concessions allowing certain practices to infiltrate the church that had nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with witness. They were compromising. Now you may be saying, but isn't compromise a good thing? I mean, people compromise all the time. That's how you get to an agreement. Let's look at it another way. I had a professor who said, there's no compromise or compromise. He said one should not want to compromise. The context was within a family system. He said what compromise is, is like you want A, I want B, so then we go with C. Nobody wants C. Nobody mentioned C. C wasn't in the room. But what the compromise seeks to do is, well, you don't get what you want, and I don't get what I want, and let's agree on that. And so, in the spirit of it was, in a compromise, is not really seeking agreement. It's really taking from the other person so that that person is just as unhappy with whatever is being decided as you are. That's a compromise. That's the American way. <laughs> We compromise constantly. What he says is, what you want to achieve is sacrifice. There's that word, sacrifice. We were like, what? (laughs) Like, yeah, a, a shift in the dynamics of a relationship. What a sacrifice says is, I will not get what I want this time. I will withhold what I want so that you can have what you want. But then in you getting what you want, I can still rejoice and be happy because you are happy. He went on to say, but in a healthy relationship where there's sacrifice, there's not one person that's always sacrificing. So if that happens, then you need to shift the dynamics a bit. And I thought, wow, that's a really interesting concept to sacrifice instead. So as a church, how do we apply this well as a church we don't want to compromise the gospel we don't want to keep giving up pieces of the gospel until we have nothing that remotely mirrors the image of Christ we may make sacrifices what I mean is we may have to sacrifice engaging with certain individuals or certain cultural practices so that we can keep the gospel as pure as we can because we're not perfect. And so we ask, well, who's happy with that? Who wants that? Well, God wants that. God wants that. And other people will want that because they'll look to the church and go, they did not compromise what they believed. It must really mean something if they're doubling down on this gospel. What's the takeaway? Three takeaways. One, God is always in control. Again, the point of this four through eight is to show that God has the victory. God has never not had the victory. It may look like it because there's so much evil in shenanigans going on, but God is always in control. That will never not be. Two, do not compromise your faith. Own it, claim it, protect it. Do not sacrifice your faith. And three, we have the victory. So, again, regardless of what may be going on in our lives, regardless of what may be going on in the church, we ultimately have the victory. Why? Because all eyes are on Christ. Christ reigns. Amen.